0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org/future to learn more and support their cause. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best—it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line—it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI—it's possible. we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. Today we're going to talk about the political turmoil in Israel, where Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's plan to overhaul the judiciary has spurred sweeping protests. Late last month, on a Sunday, protesters and strikers brought life in Israel to a near halt. Planes were grounded. Hospitals stopped providing non-essential care. Malls and banks closed. The next day, the prime minister backed down, saying that he would postpone the parliamentary vote on the proposed overhaul. But despite that concession, the protests have continued. To discuss the political crisis unfolding in Israel, I'm joined by Ambassador Martin Indyk. He has twice served as U.S. ambassador to Israel, both times under President Clinton. And under President Obama, he served as special envoy for Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. And now he's the Lowy Distinguished Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Ambassador, welcome to the show. Thanks Thanks very much, Preet. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, as I just mentioned, I want to talk about the protests going on in Israel. So we're recording this in the early afternoon of Thursday, April 6th. The news has just broken— that dozens of rockets were fired from Lebanon into Israel. And I'm sure you're getting a lot of inquiries about it, and it's of great concern. What can you tell us about what that is and what that means?
1: Well, it's uh, most unusual, a a surprise. Uh, There's been a lot of tension in the last uh, couple of nights in uh, Jerusalem, in the the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the third holiest mosque in, in Islam. Uh, in the old city of Jerusalem, and there have been confrontations between uh, young uh, Muslims in, uh, in in the mosque and locked themselves in the mosque, and Israeli police who are rooting them out of there and and beating them up as they go inside this third holiest mosque. So it's really increased the tension. Normally, when this happens, we see rockets being fired by Hamas out of Gaza, the territory which Hamas controls in Gaza in a kind of solidarity move. And two years ago, that produced an 11-day war um, uh, focused on on Gaza between uh, the Israeli armed forces and and, uh, Hamas and Palestine Islamic Jihad in Gaza. This time there have been a few rockets out of of Gaza, but today, that is Thursday, second day of Passover, uh, and with Ramadan continuing, we had Rockets, some thirty or more rockets, uh, out of Lebanon. Uh, the Israeli Defense Forces have announced uh, number one that there will be retaliation, and number two that they came from Hamas. Uh, it's not been previously known, at least publicly, that Hamas had positions in Lebanon and the ability to fire rockets from Lebanon. Normally, the concern is about Hezbollah, which has something like one hundred and fifty thousand rockets and and missiles in Lebanon, uh, targeted at Israel. So this is a a bit of a surprise. Uh, It certainly ratchets up the tension considerably, and Israeli retaliation into Lebanon risks a wider war between Hezbollah and Israel that could could come out of this.
0: What is the scale of the retaliation, do you expect, and that you also might think would be appropriate?
1: Well, the Israeli calculations in this regard is always about how to maintain or re-establish, in this case, their deterrence. And so they want to do enough to get the message across that it's not worth it to fire rockets into Israel, uh, but at the same time, not too much, because they're not interested in having a an all-out war uh, with Hezbollah in Lebanon, which could be very problematic uh for Israel with a lot of rockets raining down on Israeli cities. So uh, they'll use their air force, I guess, and, and they'll go in and and uh, hit, hit targets, uh, Hamas targets, I guess. Uh, and we'll see. There hasn't been any Israeli casualties as a result of the firing off of these salvos from Lebanon. And so that makes it possible for them to retaliate in a way that perhaps avoids the escalation, but it's a—it's not a highly accurate arrangement, especially when we're dealing with a new actor here in Lebanon. Right,
0: so we'll follow that and watch that as it unfolds, but the, the principal reason I wanted to have you on was to talk about this plan that Prime Minister Netanyahu has had to overhaul Israel's judiciary, which has caused massive protests. And as I mentioned in the intro just a short while ago, Netanyahu postponed that plan. So before we talk about what the change of heart was about and whether it's permanent or temporary, could you just explain to folks who haven't been following it what the overhaul is and why it's so controversial and upsetting to so many Israelis? Sure.
1: So this is uh, a series of bills, legislation, that have been submitted uh, to the Knesset uh, by the governing parties uh, to try to curb the independence of the judiciary. Uh, now it's important to understand that Israel doesn't have a constitution. It has some basic laws that are, uh, have some standing more than normal laws, but uh, that's about it. It has a declaration of independence, but that doesn't have standing as a, as a constitution, just a, a set of principles that have been adhered to in the past. But the Supreme Court has been quite activist in uh, asserting uh, and protecting uh, individual rights and striking down legislation on rare occasions, maybe once every two to three years, that impacts uh, individual liberties. Supreme Court has also been protecting the rights of Palestinian landowners in the West Bank, which is legally occupied territory, occupied by Israel in, after the 1967 Six-Day War, And normally, the law that applies there is military law, occupation law, but the Palestinian landowners have been able successfully to apply to the Supreme Court for protection. And uh, the other thing that that Supreme Court has done, which has this far-right religious government uh, concerned, is that it has asserted uh, the principle of equality in service in the army and therefore the need for uh, the yeshiva students of the uh, religious parties to serve in the army and that remains a highly contested issue so as a consequence of of this what's seen by right wing uh, religious parties as uh, an activist court that's interfering and 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 uh preventing them from Protecting their or promoting their interests. They've introduced this legislation to try to curb the judiciary. The most important one, uh, which was the one that was put on hold that you referred to, was a legislation that would enable the government effectively to pack the court with its own appointees. And with mandatory retirement for Supreme Court judges in Israel at the age of 70, there are two judges that will retire in October, I believe, of this year. And so if the legislation passes, the government will have the opportunity uh, effectively to, to put their own people in the court and and thereby enable it to protect the other legislation, which is also on hold at the moment, designed to, to curb other parts of the independence of the court.
0: Right. D- did Netanyahu miscalculate, were these protests and their size... Foreseeable or not?
1: Yes, I think it was a major miscalculation. I have spent many hours with Netanyahu over the years. He was <laughs> prime minister when I was ambassador, and he was prime minister when I was special envoy for President Obama and Secretary of State Kerry. So I, I know him quite well, and this is it's most unusual for him. He's the most skilled politician in Israel. That's why he's the longest serving prime minister in Israel, which is no mean feat, given it's all about maintaining disparate parties in coalitions. It's not like our system of government at all. And he's he's a master of that game. And yet, uh, first he, he lost control of the commentary. He's usually the master of spin, uh, and it became a a you know that what he was doing became portrayed. I think accurately, but he he would disagree as a threat to Israel's democratic values, as a threat to individual liberties, uh, as an attempt by the government to establish an illiberal democracy uh, along the lines of Hungary or Poland or Turkey that have all curbed the independence of their judiciaries. So that was his his first miscalculation. But I think the major miscalculation was that it would provoke a full-fledged revolt of secular. Israeli civil society, and the hundreds of thousands of of people that have come out in the streets, mostly in Tel Aviv, but not just there, all over the country, for 13 weeks in a row, uh, really uh, was unexpected. And it became so profound that it was impacting the military. And this ties us into what we were discussing about Lebanon, because Israel's has a standing army, but it depends on its reserves. And the reservists, who were very much part of this secular revolt, uh, started to stand up and say they weren't going to answer the call uh, to to serve. And this was particularly alarming when uh, 95% of the pilots in the squadron that is responsible for Israel's long-term, long-range, excuse me, long-range aircraft that, that would be used for an attack on Iran, for instance, they all said they wouldn't they wouldn't turn up for duty. And so it was really impacting the military capabilities of Israel, sending a very bad signal to Israel's enemies that it was deeply divided and this was impacting its military capabilities. And then the defense minister stood up and said he was so concerned about this that he then called on Netanyahu to pause the legislation, and he was fired by Netanyahu, and that brought out an incredible response. So uh,
0: now we have a different kind. Was that of that firing? Was our, that firing a mistake?
1: Oh, it was a huge mistake because it precipitated basically a shutdown of the country. Uh, what he did was not—I mean, he not only lost control of the narrative and lost control of of the streets but he also lost control of security. He poses himself as, you know, the protector of Israel's security, especially against Iran. Now he's firing the defense minister who has a lot of credibility, former general, um, because he stood up and said, this is what you're doing is affecting our security. So on all counts, he really uh, uh, screwed it up.
0: (laughs) Can you explain what, if any, relationship there is between Netanyahu's 2019 indictment on corruption charges and his interest in pushing this overhaul of the judiciary?
1: Well, certainly uh, one can draw a connection between packing the court with friendly judges and the prospect that if he is convicted, uh, he's currently in court on charges of, of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. Right. If he's convicted, that will go to the Supreme Court. He'll take it to the Supreme Court. He can do it directly. Doesn't go through other courts. And if he's got favorable judges, then uh, he can assume that he'll get a, he'll get off. So that's, that looks like the logical connection. Yeah. Whether he needs this in order to protect himself from, from going to jail is, is not, is not that clear, but it certainly looks like and once that happens, and it's happened, I mean, people now have clearly in their minds that he's doing this for personal gain, personal protection. Then it really reinforces this sense that he's up to some some corrupt practice using a, a legitimate majority, which he gained legitimately through elections, for illegitimate ends.
0: It's part of the issue that Netanyahu has gotten away with a lot of things. He persists as a formidable politician, even though he's had setbacks, even though he's been indicted. Does he, like some other leaders, begin to get too arrogant for his own good, or is that not a fair statement?
1: I think it is. Over the recent years, he engaged in behavior that, again, I found surprising. Uh, These charges that he's on uh, for activities while he was prime minister, Designed basically to control the media, and give his wife and him cigars and champagne and jewelry. The baby that I worked with over the years that was extremely careful about those kinds of things, and so I think there is a hubris here, um, fed by his wife and, and son, who have more extreme views than him. But he tends to be a narcissistic personality, like someone else you know very well, and, uh, and, and his wife and son seem to reinforce that, and that's, I think, affected his judgment.
0: I want to talk about Israel and the United States. So last week, President Biden publicly said of Netanyahu's government, quote, they cannot continue to go down this road, end quote. How extraordinary a statement is that, and how does that land not just with Netanyahu, but with the Israeli population generally?
1: Well, it's most extraordinary for Joe Biden. He's been very careful to adopt the approach of speaking truth to Netanyahu in private, um, but not putting that out in public. Uh, but I think what happened this time blew his fuses. And and the reason, as far as I can figure it out, is that uh, Biden is an old-style uh, Zionist. Who you know he he became a Zionist in in the era of Golda Meir and and Moshe Dayan and and Ben Gurion and you know the founding fathers and mothers of Israel and so it it's it's deep in his system even in his DNA uh, to be supportive of Israel but he as we know from his public speeches and statements considers this time in world affairs as an inflection point between democracies and autocracies. That's the great battle of, of his time as president, in his view. And here Israel, beloved Israel in his mind, is going in the direction of autocracy. And this, the special relationship between the United States and Israel is underpinned not just by common interests but by common values as democratic states. That has always been the case and the reason why Israel has always enjoyed overwhelming bipartisan support because it's a, an embattled democracy in a difficult part of the world. And, and yet here it is uh, under Netanyahu's leadership heading down a path towards illiberal democracy. And I think that Biden became very concerned about that. He sent him a private message. He had a phone conversation that was, I understand, quite difficult. But then after Netanyahu put the legislation on pause, responding to what Biden had said in private, Biden went out publicly the next day and put it out in public, as you said, and he added a few other things. He had two goes at the press. And the second time, he said that Netanyahu was not needed to fix this problem. He needed to back away. And essentially, he wasn't welcome in Washington until he did. Uh, now, that is uh, a, applying real uh, pressure to Netanyahu.
0: So, do you think he backs down or he persists? Well,
1: he's, he's got a problem now. I just want to explain why it's a problem for Netanyahu in particular. It's not just that, that it looks like he's, he, he's damaging the US-Israel relationship, which is critical to Israel's survival and well-being. If he can't come to Washington, he can't advance the two issues that he said during his campaign and when he was sworn in were his priorities, that is, Iran and Saudi Arabia normalising relations with Saudi Arabia, preventing Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons, Neither of those things can be achieved without Netanyahu coming to Washington, sitting down with Biden, working out a joint strategy, and going to the Hill and talking to his Republican mates and, and ginning them up to pressure Biden to do his bidding. And so he's, he's got a real problem on his hands now, that if he goes ahead without a consensus, uh, he's not going to be able to pursue those other Uh, objectives, which he said were his priorities.
0: Right. Final question for you. I must ask this, given events in the United States, as you know, and as everyone in the world knows, Donald Trump, former president of the United States, was just indicted by the Manhattan DA's office. He will remain under indictment, likely throughout the campaign season leading up to 2024. Are there any lessons at all that we can draw from the Israeli example of a leader of a country being under indictment for a long period of time and what that country went through? Do you have any advice or observations about what America is about to go through?
1: Of course, Netanyahu is a sitting prime minister and, and Donald Trump is a past president, hopefully not not, not going to get re-elected, but, so the, the situation isn't quite comparable. But there's no question that, that uh, it affects the way in which the Prime Minister of Israel is viewed by his people, as, I, as we were discussing before. It, it, it looks like uh, the actions he's taking as Prime Minister are self-serving and designed to keep him out of court, uh, or out of jail, I should say, starting with uh, you know the, the coalition that he put together of far-right extremists, which he's never done before. But that was to enable him to get back into government to try to use his office to protect himself. And so I guess that's the the parallel here. Trump is trying to get back into office uh, uh, and part of the uh, explanation, whether it's true or not, I think it probably is, but whether it's true or not, is, the assumption is he's doing it to try to protect himself. Uh, and that is highly problematic in in our leaders. Let me say one other thing that I think is is interesting in parallel here. As we know, January 6th, our democracy uh, was threatened, deeply threatened. And we did not come out in the streets in the hundreds and thousands to protect our democracy and stand up for it. Israelis did when their democracy was threatened by a government that was trying to pass laws that would would, uh, curb the independence of the judiciary and reduce the checks and balances in their system. And they came out week after week after week. I think it's, it's, it's really quite inspiring that so many people in Israel care about their democracy and were so effective in expressing their commitment to democracy that they forced the government to at least put the legislation on pause.
0: I think that's a very fine note to end on. Ambassador Martin Indyk, thanks for joining us on the show, and thanks for your insight. Thank you, Craig. Thanks Thanks for having me. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tadishore. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam ozer and Noah Azulay. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the Cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Curlander, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.